So what we're doing today is we're actually wrapping up our uh, summer sermon series. We're wrapping up what our summer, we're wrapping up our summer sermon series, the, what we've been calling Visitation, Encounters with God. See, what we've been doing uh, this entire summer, we've been looking at various encounters that God had with his people throughout Scripture, and all, all while looking for answers looking for an answer to this question, what does it mean for us to know God? What does it mean for us to meet God? And today we're looking and we're concluding that whole sermon series with uh, Saul on the Damascus Road, where he literally meets the resurrected, exalted Jesus, and his life is forever changed. So, like, so this encounter where he meets Jesus forever changes the trajectory of his entire life. And so we're this is also fitting for us because as we're finishing up this sermon series with, uh, with uh, Saul coming to know Jesus, uh, next week we're starting a sermon series on the book of Colossians, which uh, Saul wrote. So this helps us give some context to the man of who he is, uh, to, to the man of, excuse me, who he was, as to, in hopes to better understand his, uh, the book of Colossians as well. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. We're going to start out by reading Acts 8 verses 1 through 3, then jumping to Acts 9 uh, verses 1 through 19. And that's a little typo in your worship guide there. But we'll be looking at Acts 9 verses 1 through 19. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. This is Acts 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Jumping down to Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales, scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that now in this time, that as we have heard your word, we ask that your spirit would be working in our hearts so that we would truly hear your word, that we would receive your word, and that we would uh, meet with you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So about five years ago, I went to the doctor in excruciating pain. What happened was that I developed a bulging disc. And the doctor said to me that if you... uh, if you want to avoid surgery, then you need to take better care of yourself. And that news was rather startling to me because I was in good shape. Like just uh, a month or two earlier, I ran a 5K in under 20 minutes. I was quite proud of myself, and I'm hearing news from my doctor saying, hey, you need to take better care of yourself. But his understanding of taking better care of yourself was you need to stretch out after running. You need to stretch out after cycling. You need to do yoga. You need to stretch. These things are important You need to take some uh, core classes, avoid long car rides, take a break, stand up every 45 minutes after sitting straight, sitting for 45 minutes straight. And so as I received this news, I I knew in that moment that if I was going to take this seriously, my life was going to be different, that I was going to start working out differently. I was going to start taking uh, care of myself differently. And this is rather a loose um, illustration, a loose analogy to help us understand what Paul is going through here. Because Saul, I said Paul, Saul, Paul, same, same name. I don't do that today, just warning you. But Saul had a genuine come-to-Jesus moment. He, this encounter right here in his life is that was going to forever shape everything about him. And so, like we, we tend to have these moments in our life all over the place. But what Paul is experiencing, as, Paul is exper- as Saul is experiencing this come-to-Jesus moment, he is experiencing what theologians and sociologists refer to as a conversion. And Saul's conversion, truly, uh, this is actually going to be a rather provocative statement, Saul's conversion outside the, outside the life of Jesus, outside of Jesus' death and resurrection, is the... Uh, second most defining moment of the early church. And I say this because uh, Saul, whom some of you probably know as Paul, Paul wrote books. He went on missionary journeys. He went on church planning journeys throughout the Mediterranean region. And so Paul wrote the books of Romans, Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, Colossians, the letters to First and Second to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. Like so, Paul wrote a massive amount of the New Testament. And so, if Saul did not encounter the resurrected Jesus, then the New Testament would be quite different than what we have today. And now, if you grew up in the church or if you've been around Christians for any length, you've heard Christians share stories of how they either came to know Jesus or how. God is at work currently in their lives. And so, therefore, if you've been in the church at all, you've heard some really awesome stories of how God has rescued addicts and murderers and how God has renewed and healed marriages, how he has liberated perfectionists, and he has transformed people from the inside out. 
That, that's, that's an awesome story that this is a, these stories are, are something that the church needs to steward well. But at the same time, uh, one thing that can happen is that these stories can become burdens if you don't have a similar traumatic story. That's how we can actually hear and internalize them. And Saul has a sudden, dramatic, spectacular encounter with Jesus that, is, that seems to be different than the majority of our encounters with Jesus. And so what I want us to do today is really think about what Saul's experience, what Saul's come-to-Jesus moments looked like. But in doing so, I want us to, re- to really understand what it looks like for us to come to know Jesus. And, to, and by looking at Saul's story, we'll actually begin to see uh, just how much we have we. We'll be able to, let me rephrase. By looking at Saul's story, we'll be able to see just how much we have been able to come to Jesus ourselves. So what does it look like to come to Jesus? What does it look like to come to Jesus? This is the question that I want us to think about, and there's uh, two, two parts to this answer. Two, there's two, two parts to my answer to that question. But coming to Jesus means admitting who you are before God. And so let's see how this is the case in Saul's life. Like we first see Saul in Acts 8. And what's he's doing there? The, the church leader, Stephen, is being stoned to death. And the reason why uh, Stephen is being stoned to death is that he is preaching. In Acts 6, he's, he's arrested and he's brought to before uh, the Jewish leaders for a trial in Acts 7. And he gives us massive speech. And his speech... Uh, got quite the response from the Jewish leaders. And they said, he, this man must die. He must be stoned to death. But as the Jewish leaders are there arresting him, interrogating him, trying him, where's Saul in all this? Saul is there as a witness. As Saul is there as the stoning is going on, he is there holding the coats and the cloaks of the men that are being stoned. And so Saul is a Jewish leader who has a role in Stephen's death. And he is a Pharisee. And, and Saul is zealous for God, and, and he thought, and let me back up. As a Pharisee, Saul misunderstood the favor, the grace, and the love of God. He completely misunderstood that. Saul believed that it was actually his, his zeal and his religiosity and his morals that actually earned him, that earned God's favor, that earned God's love. This is what Saul wrote reflecting on his life in Philippians 3. He says that if you think you have any reason to boast, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law of God. I'm an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What Saul is doing there in Philippians is he's saying that I have every reason to boast before God in light of the, the, Pharisaical, the Pharisaical law, understanding of the law that I am actually the Pharisee of Pharisees. I am the, 
essentially the most holy Pharisee that has ever lived. And so this zeal, this commitment to this pharisaical way of life leads him to persecute Jesus' followers, which we see referred to in this text as the way. Like the, the way is an a early way that um, the, it was an early a phrase to refer to the church. And so due to this persecution, Christians flee Jerusalem, going to, uh, to Damascus and elsewhere, and Saul wants to chase them. So he gets basically uh, uh, letters uh, from the high priest endorsing his, her, his persecution, and he goes to Damascus to coerce, uh, to either, to basically enlist Jewish leaders to, to per- persecute uh, the church there. And so the, the one of the things I'm saying right here is that we need to admit who we are before God. But what this means is that every single one of us needs Jesus. Every single one of us is a sinner who is coming before God. And so perhaps you're thinking at this point, sure, I can see that that is true of Saul. I can see how he would need Jesus because he's an awful person. He's a murderer. He's a terrorist. He killed innocent people. But that's not me. Perhaps you're thinking that, but if so, consider this. One of God's laws is do not murder. And when Jesus was teaching on that law, he said, if you would harbor anger in your heart, if you look at another person and say, Raka, you fool, then you have actually committed murder in your own heart. And another commandment there, which is do not commit adultery, Jesus teaching on that commandment says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery in your own heart. See, what Jesus is after is not just actions, not just about behavior. Jesus is actually looking at the heart, and that shows us what God cares about. God cares about our hearts. And so I'm sh- like, perhaps you're here and you haven't killed anyone, but... That's not the standard that God actually gives us. The standard is actually what's going on in our hearts. Have we loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have we loved our neighbors as ourselves? And the answer to both those questions is no. We haven't met God's standard there. And so Saul, as a Pharisee, is believing that his religiosity, his zeal, his obedience, his morals earn him the right to come before God. They earn life with God. So he believes that God is actually in his debt due to his obedience, that God owes him something due to this zeal and religiosity. But that's not the way of Jesus. That's not Christianity. That is not the way of God. Because what Paul is actually doing here is Paul is recreating God into his own image. And Paul is recreating God into his own image and this is actually something every single one of us do. No matter if we, you're a skeptic or a seeker or a religious person, we are all guilty of remaking God into our own image one way or another. And Paul is guilty of that. And so perhaps you're an atheist and you avoid Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you. And so you assume that then if there is a God, then he wouldn't have any views that would upset you. And one writer, this is how he put it, Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. 
You will have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and a genuine interaction with. Only if God can say things that outrage you, challenge you, and make you struggle will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. You see, friends, we need a God to actually challenge us because that's a sign of a God who loves us and who's inviting us into a relationship with, with him. And Saul's entire life is based upon a lie. The lie is this, is that if you, that if you obey God, that's why he accepts you. That your obedience is the reason why God accepts you. But that's a lie. He had no understanding of love. He had no understanding of grace, no understanding of compassion. And another writer put it this way. As a, and this, this writer, she put it this way, that it's, this is another sign that you've remade God into your own image, that when, when God hates the people whom you hate, that is a sign that you have remade God into your own image. And Saul has done that. Saul is going about persecuting and killing uh, these Christians, and so he has clearly remade God into his own image based upon this lie that his acceptance before God is completely dependent upon his religion, completely dependent upon his religiosity, I should say. And so the reality is, as we look at all this, the, f- the first thing I want us to realize is that coming to Jesus is that everyone needs to come to Jesus. It doesn't matter how good you are. Paul is over here saying that, hey, I'm like the best of the best. Like, I'm the holiest of, of Pharisees. That's what Paul's saying over here. But he desperately needs Jesus, as we all do. The second thing I want us to think about is that coming to Jesus is a process. Coming to Jesus is a process. And if you, perhaps you're thinking, really? Like, Saul's coming to Jesus moment is, seems to be sudden. It seems to be spectacular. It seems to be extraordinary. Because he's, after all, he's on this road to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him, and Saul falls down from his horse. He's completely cough off guard. How in the world is this a, a process? Well, I want to, let's put this in context. Because the truth is, this is not the first moment that God pursued Saul. Uh, earlier, I made the statement that this is actually um, the second most defining moment of the entire early church outside of the life of Jesus. And one of the reasons why I say that, that within the book of Acts, which is 26 chapters, uh, 28 chapters, so, uh, there are four times this event is recounted for us. Four times. And in Acts 26, we, we see Saul like defending himself and giving testimony uh, of how God is working in his life before the public officials. And, and he, as he's recounting uh, in Acts 26, he's saying that I was on the road to Damascus and Jesus appeared to me and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But then he goes on and, and says and gives us an, a more insight that Jesus says more to Saul here in this moment than uh, than, than Luke first records for us. And in, well, this is what we read in, in Acts 26. In Acts 26, we read, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads? Where did that come from? Like, when I'm, like what in the world is a goad? And, well, a goad uh, is basically a cattle prod that a farmer would use to steer ox or, ox or team of oxen as they're going about doing uh, their, 
their farm work. So literally, it's a cattle prod. And so the image that Jesus is giving us is that Saul is actively resisting God. And he's actively resisting Jesus. It is hard for you to, it is painful for you to resist the goads. Like if you're a parent, you know this, you, you know these moments that you love your children and you're trying to go one way and your kids lean in the other and trying to go the other way and you're just like, I could drag you all day long. That's like, it's but not necessarily good for their, their shoulders or elbows or anything else like that. It's, it's not good for them to, to resist. That's the image that Jesus is giving us here. And so what's going on is that God has been pursuing Saul in his life, there's a process to coming to Jesus. And at the very least, God has been pursuing him through the life of Stephen. Saul was there in, in his trial. Saul was there when, he, he gave his, when Stephen gave his defense. And during uh, Stephen's defense, Stephen goes on to say that is, is on the basis of God's love that I have life with God. It's not on the, on the basis of my religiosity that I have, I have standing before God. The only reason I have life with God is through Jesus Christ. And then Stephen goes on to say, the man whom you killed. And that's when uh, the crowd was in an uproar. The Jewish leaders were in an uproar and wanted to kill him. And so Saul was there for all of this, for his, for his trial and for his execution. And so how do we know that God was working through the life of Stephen? And, and, or how do we know that God was working in Paul's, Saul's life through Stephen? Well, again, going back to the book of Acts, it's 28 chapters. I've said that three times now. The longest speech in the entire book of Acts, and there are some lengthy ones, but the longest speech is actually Acts 7, verses 1 through 53. The longest speech is Stephen's speech in his defense. And so as Luke, Luke is the, the author of Acts. Luke is the guy who wrote the biography of Jesus, and, but according to Luke, uh, Luke also continued that with Acts. And so how Luke went about uh, writing this, these books is that he went about the work of an investigative journalist. He interviewed apostles. He, he associated with them. He, he asked eyewitnesses and, said, and got information from them. And so how did Luke get the information about Stephen's death? Through Saul. It's clear that this, that, therefore it would be clear, it's clear that Stephen made an impression on Paul. That's something that Stephen said stuck with him for his life. Because when Saul heard Stephen say, your, reli your, relig your religiosity does not matter. Your zeal for God does not matter. What Saul saw, what he witnessed, was that here's this man, Stephen, who's loved by God. He is known by God. He is a friend of God. And you know what? Saul hated that. He hated Stephen with every fiber in his being because he was loved by God and it was not, had nothing to do with his works. It had nothing to do with his obedience. It had nothing to do with his religiosity. And that's the context for the Damascus Road. Saul sees this. He's enraged 
at this, and he's on the road to Damascus, and that's when Jesus appears to Saul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to resist. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. See, Jesus is appearing before, before Saul, and he's there in his graciousness. He's there in his love. He's there in his compassion. Because Jesus is the one who has been personally persecuted by, by Saul. His church has been ravaged. Men and women dragged from their homes to either imprisonment or death. And if Saul was the one persecuted, Saul would not have responded like Jesus did. But contrary to everything Saul expected, uh, he was no friend of God's. He was an enemy of God's. But do we see how God treats his enemy here? Like, to learn that you are an enemy of God, that's a hard thing to hear. But when God is the one who's coming to you and telling you that you are persecuting me, that you are at war with me, it's actually transforming. See, that's another element of what it looks like to come to Jesus is transforming. Peter, uh, and this actually also demonstrates the process too, that Peter, the same man who, de- who denied Jesus three times, the same man who uh, sa- said that, yeah, Peter, the same man who denied Jesus three times before he died upon the cross, a few weeks later, he was confidently preaching the gospel. And the Jewish leaders were like, is this Peter? What's up with him? He's acting in a way that is completely inconsistent with his character. And the same thing here with Saul, that Saul's life is being changed. So you see, friends, to learn that we are enemies of God apart from Jesus may seem like devastating news. But when Jesus, when God is the one who comes to us, who meets us and tells us so much, it's actually transforming because Jesus wants to befriend us. Jesus wants to befriend you. He wants to include you in his family. And Saul, all throughout his writings in the New Testament, he highlights this. In the book of Romans, he says, uh, no one is righteous, no, not one. But later he goes on and says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, he says, hey, we were once children of wrath, but now God has made us his very own children because God is rich in mercy. In Colossians, which we'll look at in a few weeks, he says that we have been rescued from the darkness, the, the kingdom of darkness, and we've been brought into the kingdom of his son in whom he, whom he loves, the kingdom of forgiveness and redemption. And you see that this is the God who pursues us, a God of love, a God of grace, a God of compassion. He is after us, and he wants us to have a life with him. And I suspect that a number of us, a number of you are here today, and you are also resisting Jesus in your lives. Perhaps you're holding on to an old sin, an old lifestyle, or an old habit. Perhaps, like Saul, Jesus is an irritant in your life that you'd want to eradicate, push out of your life. Perhaps you know that there is something in your life that you should start doing, but you keep putting off. And these are all instances of of kicking against and resisting God's love for you. But friends, this is what Paul realized, that Jesus loves you, that Jesus is coming to you, not on the basis of anything you've done, but only because of his love and favor for you. That the life that Jesus invites us to is not a, 
the end to our life. It's actually the, the beginning. It's, it's different than an end. It's, it's a beginning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, a German theologian of, around World War II, he wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. But then he goes on to say this. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and follow him. Or it may be a life like Martin Luther, who had to leave the monastery to go out into the world. But it's the same death in every time. You see, friends, the, the death, like coming to Jesus does involve a, a death. But it's actually the death of the old you. And it, is, it involves the birth of the new person whom God always intended and created you to be. This is the life that God offers you. This is the life that you can have through Jesus Christ. Not, it's not a life that is based upon religiosity. It's not a life based upon uh, morals or obedience or zeal. It's entirely based upon your life with Christ. And it's Jesus who comes to you and brings you into his family. That is what Paul has experienced and it completely transformed him. And that is the same life that is being offered to you. Let's pray.